it is the largest source of conservation funding for private land conservation. Conservation benefits of a high tunnel usually come down to Welcome to CCE Out Loud, Episode 2. This is Paul Treadwell, and I'm here with my co-host, Katie Bailden. Hello. Hey, Katie. And we'll be talking about conservation of the Farm Bill. So, Katie, where are we going? First, we're going to head over to the Cornell Lab of Ornithology in Ithaca, New York, and talk with Dr. Amanda Rodewald about the impacts of conservation funding in the Farm Bill. And then I'm going to head out to Cortland, New York, where I'll talk with Alan Gandelman of Main Street Farms, and we'll learn about how the funding of the EQIP program of the Farm Bill benefits small farmers. But I think before we do that, we need to have a little background here. The Farm Bill had its roots in the Great Depression. When the United States was in the midst of a crisis, we had widespread hunger, overproduction on farms, and falling commodity prices. In 1933, President Roosevelt signed the Agricultural Adjustment Act, which allowed the government to purchase surplus crops from farmers and distributed them to underserved communities. Now, Katie, did you know in the beginning it was called the Agricultural Adjustment Act, and that's what's grown into the Farm Bill? I did not. In the beginning, the Agricultural Adjustment Act really tried to find this balance between agricultural use and conservation of our natural resources. And so also in the 30s, you had the Dust Bowl going on. I saw drought devastation in nine states. I talked with families who had lost their wheat crop, lost their corn crop, and that's when Congress created the Soil Conservation Service, which we now know as the Natural Resources Conservation Service. And that had a goal of trying to conserve natural resources that provide the foundations for American agriculture, most especially soil. So since then, the Farm Bill has grown and changed in response to new knowledge, new technologies, and new challenges. Beginning in 1985, conservation grew to become a standalone title in the Farm Bill, Title II, and that marked a recognition that conservation had impacts and benefits beyond increased agricultural productivity. And it's really interesting that in 1985 they, they sort of codified conservation. That seems to be the result of all the environmental legislation that happened in the late 60s okay. and early 70s and mm-hmm. really sort of rose this topic to the forefront. We've seen that over the past few farm bills there's been a steady rise in funding to about 9% of the total farm bill. But then In 2014, there was a reduction of that amount to about 5 or 6%. And so we're still not sure what's going to happen with this new farm bill, but we're hopeful that the House and Senate can reconcile the differences in their approaches. Regardless of the outcome, we'll learn that this funding has tremendous impacts on conservation here in the United States. We'll learn more about this from Dr. Rodewald. And also one of the funding programs that we'll hear about is called EQIP, the Environmental Quality Incentives Program. This program provides financial and technical assistance to farmers in order to address natural resource issues and deliver positive environmental benefits. Our discussion with Alan will provide a concrete example of the impacts this particular funding can have. So let's get started. Okay.
though many of us really associate Farm Bill conservation programs with agricultural landscapes, you know, a rangelands, there also are provisions that apply to other kinds of ecosystems. This is Dr. Amanda Rodewald at the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology. So, for example, the Farm Bill supports forestry. And if we look to the south, we know that longleaf pine ecosystems, um, those forests have been increased by about 50% due to farm bill programs. And they're doing that in a way that allows for timber production, which helps local communities, and also protects wildlife habitat. And we see the same scenario out in um, the Great Basin area of the U.S., where farm bill programs have protected about five million acres of sagebrush habitat. And that in part helped us to avoid having to list the greater sage grouse as federally endangered. So again, we see these indirect benefits to us from ecosystem services and also foregone costs that we would have to spend to protect the environment otherwise. The Cornell Lab of O is historically in the forefront of many citizen, supporting right, many citizen yeah. science programs. Is there any crossover between citizen science programs that you know of and farm bill conservation supported measures? With some of our programs like eBird, which is now you know this global database, the actually largest accumulating biodiversity database we have in the world, that's applied in a lot of cases where we might not be aware of it. But the ways that it's been applied to, to other conservation measures and programs can help us to identify priority regions or locations that we should be investing dollars, but also to evaluate outcomes, right? So we can see if, if we're having meaningful impacts out there on the landscape. So we know some of the importance of private lands and some of the benefits of the Farm Bill. We've actually um, did a State of the Birds report in 2017 focused on the benefits from Farm Bill to bird populations. That report used our citizen science data. And we'll link to that report in the you know, okay. program description. Great. Given that Title II funding is a relatively small percentage of the overall farm bill, what kind of difference can this actually make on the farm and in our communities? Yeah, it's interesting because even though only about 5% of the farm bill funding is directed toward those conservation programs, it still represents one of the largest sources of conservation funds that we have in the U.S. And perhaps even more importantly, it is the largest source of conservation funding for private land conservation. And the importance of that really can't be overemphasized. If we look across our country, about two-thirds of it is in private ownership. So right there we know that the choices that are being made on private lands is going to have really profound consequences for biodiversity and for ecosystem services. And so those farm bill programs in the conservation provisions are actually supporting that conservation. When I think about right. conservation, I think about the West and where they have these huge right. preserves. We don't think about two-thirds of the actual working land. So it's that whole, like, working land can actually be used for conservation. Right, absolutely. And if we look around the world, most of the conservation organizations are actually moving in a direction where they're recognizing the importance of working lands for conservation, but also for supporting communities. And yet, 
globally and even within North America, oftentimes are the landscapes that are most environmentally sensitive or unique or are biodiversity hotspots. They're also in places that people rely on the local environment to support their livelihoods. So it's imperative that we find these win-win solutions that work for people and the environment. So it's not irreconcilable to have working land and conservation practices? No, absolutely not. And what's interesting, just as an aside, I think it's a, it's a really interesting example. So we know like grassland birds, for example, have been plummeting since the mid-60s when we started monitoring them. And many people assume that that was a consequence of the loss of native grasslands, so prairies. But in fact, many of the populations of grassland species persisted, you know, fine on agricultural landscapes and working landscapes, but they weren't as um, used intensively. You didn't have the large farms and kind of edge-to-edge farming. So the practices were different, but agriculture and grazing were actually compatible with grassland bird conservation for many decades. Here in New York State, what agencies and organizations are involved in Farm Bill-related conservation activities? In New York State, there are two two different agencies out of the U.S. Department of Agriculture that are responsible for administering a lot of the Farm Bill programs. So the biggest one is the um, NRCS, so the um, Natural Resources Conservation Service, and they oversee most of the programs through the Farm Bill, as well as provide technical assistance to participants. Um, The other agency is the Farm Service Agency, which has overseen um, conservation reserve program and the conservation reserve enhancement program. So those are the two primary ones. Hey, how you doing? Good. Where do you want to do the interview? Wherever is good for you. My name is Alan Gandelman. I own Main Street Farms. We're a certified organic vegetable farm in Cortland, New York. We farm about, we have about 50 acres in production, and most of our vegetables go for our CSA, our farmer's market, and some go wholesale to restaurants, mostly in New York City. We have about uh, around 20 employees and probably 40,000 square feet of high tunnels and greenhouses total. Conservation benefits of a high tunnel usually come down to soil quality and erosion because inside of that high tunnel, we can cover crop if we need to throughout the winter, we can add compost, we can uh, add amendments on a much smaller scale, there's no runoff from the rain, so you're not just kind of fertilizing the field and hoping for the best. And also the production is a lot more intensive, so instead of growing on an eighth of an acre or a quarter acre outside where you're tilling, you can kind of do it in the high tunnel in a more uh, low till situation. We also use a lot of black uh, landscape fabric in the high tunnels to kind of keep the weeds down and drip irrigation. So that also helps with water conservation. So a traditional greenhouse is usually heated. So the only thing that's kind of different between a greenhouse and a high tunnel, greenhouses are usually more for propagation purposes. Sometimes they have a concrete floor, uh, heat, 
and fans for ventilation. Sometimes they have lights in them. Uh, high tunnel is a much simpler structure because there is it's a passive ventilation, so the sidewalls usually roll up, and there's usually kind of gable vents that open up, and there's big doors on the ends that open up, and they're more used for growing in the, in the ground. Uh, and then there's the low tunnels, which are kind of really short little hoops that are kind of just to extend your season by a few weeks here mm -hmm. and there. Okay. So a high tunnel, you actually, if you walk into a high tunnel, you would see plants growing from, from the actual soil. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Yeah. Very cool. That EQIP grant was specifically for a high tunnel, and we built our first unheated high tunnel with that grant. It was a 30 by 76 that we built, and we're still using that high tunnel, and it really opened us up to learn about and understand how to grow all year round without using any heat and so we were growing a lot of spinach and kale and uh, lettuce all winter long and it really expanded how we could market our produce throughout the winter months here in upstate New York. From an economic perspective, the EQIP grant for the high tunnel, you know, as a starting farm and a beginning farmer with not a lot of capital, we were able to really experiment. We were able to, uh, we were growing toma heirloom tomatoes in the summertime, which really hugely increased our production. And then we were able to grow greens in the wintertime and go to a winter market with a very high value product such as spinach. And we were able to sell spinach um, all winter long, kind of retain, you know, really help with our customer retention. And now instead of just a summer CSA, like from June to November, like most farms do, uh, our CSA goes pretty much year round. Last year we went 42 weeks out of 52 weeks for our CSA. And a lot of that is because we can promise our CSA members all winter long that they will have a fresh green every single week. So they don't just get bored with uh, beets, carrots, and turnips. <laughs> The process for the EQIP grant with the high tunnel was really, really easy, really straightforward. Our local uh, NRCS office here in Cortland was really helpful, walked us through all of the paperwork, uh, showed us, made sure we filled it out correctly, reviewed it, told us the timeline. Uh, the timelines are really long, so you're basically filling out uh, paperwork a year in advance before you can get the, you know, the EQIP pro get into the EQIP program, but the process was very straightforward. You know, really the hardest part of the whole process was that we had to fund and pay for and build the high tunnel before getting reimbursed for it. So they don't just give you the money, you have to build it, then they come and inspect it. And once they see you've built it the spec and all the conservation practices are in place, then they pay you for it. And so as a new farm, that was a little tricky. We had to figure out how are we going to do that, but it really helped us, you know, get a line of credit and manage our money. And it was a really good, uh, introduction on building a business. We'd like to thank our guests for this episode, Dr. Amanda Rodewald, professor in the Department of Natural Resources here at Cornell University, and director of conservation science at the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology, and Alan Gandelman of Main Street Farms in Cortland, New York. We thank you for joining us for this podcast and look for our next episode Episode 3 coming up on August 22nd. Thanks for listening. Any opinions or values expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the position of Cornell Cooperative Extension. This episode of Extension Out Loud was produced and edited by Paul Treadwell with help and advice from Katie Belden and R.J. Anderson. 